So I have to credit my dad with raising me with a particular core value. For him, one of the things he wanted to make sure I always did was pay attention to the history of the places where I was. It was just something he cared about. And I have never lived anywhere as a result without having some sense of a relationship to the history of the place that I lived in. Now, you may not think this is strange or ironic, but it is when you consider where I actually grew up. King of Prussia. (laughs) Suburb of suburbs, (laughs) right? I have often told people who don't know this area that I grew up in a suburb on steroids. It is best known for having the mall. It is the uh, second largest mall in America, by the way, and largest if you count retail square footage. Mall of America has roller coasters and stuff. Forget that, right? Pure shopping, you go to King of Prussia. Not only did I grow up in King of Prussia, I am actually a second-generation King of Prussian. (laughs) We exist, right? My father grew up in King of Prussia. He lived in a little house on Larkspur Lane over by the high school. He and I had three of the same high school teachers in common. And I remember during all the development of the 80s and the early 90s, when I was a little kid and the mall was being built, he would spend time driving me around, walking me around, and telling me what used to be in all these places that were changing. I remember asking him why all of the houses looked the same. And he told me a story about something called the GI Bill that helped his dad buy a house after the war. I remember asking about Belmont Elementary, which had closed down. I'm still not sure why, but I used to go back behind the old abandoned elementary school and watch the stars with my friends, ride my bike up and down these big concrete things that had ramps on them that seemed very unsafe and maybe as part of why it closed, unclear. I remember going sledding at the farm that used to be at the corner of Valley Forge and Henderson, right near the township building. I remember that farm closing finally when I was maybe eight or nine. I remember most of all watching the old Norview farm. If you've lived in this area, you know the big fiberglass rooster that sat out on the road in front of Norview farm. I remember watching it be dismantled piece by piece. When I was little, it was a farm where I petted my first goats and saw my first cows. And then it became a creamery with a little farm stand. Then it was just a creamery. And eventually it was a Pertucci's. (laughs) When we are young, our sense of history is often family-sized. It is based on the places that we've been to, which not for all of us, but for most of us, is one or two places that we really know. But when we leave that place, we begin to realize that there is more than just those immediate stories that we have access to. I remember going to college and how wide my eyes opened when I realized that since I was living in the original building of the college I went to, Swarthmore College in Delaware County, founded in 1864, that meant that I lived in a room that some woman lived in in 1864. Swarthmore was co-ed from the beginning, so there was some woman living in that dorm room in Parish Hall, probably the first woman she had known to go to college. White, wealthy, Quaker, almost certainly, right? But also really stepping out and doing something very unusual. 
it changed my relationship to that place when I realized that even though I didn't know her name, she and I lived in the same room, 150 years apart. And we slept there. And we studied there. And we stressed out there, probably. And we schemed and thought about what would come of our futures in that same little room. I don't know how many of us grew up around here, but we all grew up somewhere. And we all have relationships to places in our lives that maybe we have seen change over time. Maybe it's a school that you attended that you see is different now. Maybe it is your hometown. Maybe it's a city neighborhood that you used to work in or live in. You've watched it change. Maybe if you're comfortable, close your eyes and just think of that place. Hold it in your mind as you remember it. Whatever it might be. And as you hold it in your mind, as you remember it, you might recognize that it's hard to pick a time. In these places we've watched history unfold, we can have complicated feelings. Joy, pride, loss, alienation uncertainty. Places hold a lot of stories. That place that you just imagined is so much a part of your story. And I wonder how many other people have held it as part of their story. How many other people who you know and who you don't know How many other people who lived and died before you and who will live and die after you? The farther we go back, the more we open up, even now, to who shares these spaces with us where we live. It's beyond comprehension sometimes to think about how many people and how many stories are connected to us by even just one important place in our lives. There's a show On Comedy Central, some of you might have seen it. Anybody seen the show Drunk History? It's great, right? (laughs) Now, setting the life choices of its cast members aside for a moment, right? Drunk History is a show that asks someone every time to tell the story of a historical event while they drink, right? So the stories end up colorful, and that's what makes it funny and entertaining. But simultaneously, as the stories are being told, they bring in performers, comedians, people who act out these stories. They often shoot them in Philadelphia, Virginia, Boston, the real places where these stories took place, sometimes the real buildings. And I have to say, it's a very refreshing way to experience history. This is not reading a textbook. This is not ink on a page. These are people living in real places that you and I maybe have been to or could go to. It also is refreshing to me because it brings a lot of clarity to something I realized a while ago, that history is basically dressed-up gossip, you guys, right? Think about it. It's stories about people you don't know and you weren't there, right? And we pass them on. We have these rules and conventions about how it's recorded and retold that are very academic and very important. But basically, history is gossip, When you realize that, it raises some questions about the solidness of the history we learned, as it should. Right? It makes us wonder who was telling the story in the history books we read and why. 
What substances were they under the influence of? <laughs> Interpret that however you want. But in that retelling and reenactment, along with the questions it raises, it also brings that history to a much more human level. We are watching people move and talk in all of these spaces that we are still living in today. And it makes those old stories much more immediate and fresh and real. For a handful of years, I did live outside of my ancestral King of Prussia homeland. <laughs> I studied for the ministry uh, at a little place called Harvard that you can't not sound obnoxious naming, sorry. But you can boo me now. But I have to say, when I moved up there, I was pretty overwhelmed. Harvard University, has that, have any of you been up to the campus of Harvard University? It is a, uh, a place with a lot to take in. It reminds me, actually, a lot of Washington, D.C., where I lived for a couple of years, too, because it's built up over, like, a whole town, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and everywhere you look, there are these big, imposing-looking buildings with names that are equally as imposing, right? All kinds of national institutes of stuff, right? There is a building on Harvard's campus called the Center for the Study of World Religions. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot. It's amazing that that fits in four floors, but there are buildings for all different departments, fields of study, separate schools for different disciplines. And it all feels so established and concrete and solid. But something happened my first year when I was there in 2011. I started to notice that they were hanging banners around the campus. Celebrate Harvard University's 375th anniversary. 375 years. Yeah, I saw some of your faces. For, for refresh our memories. When did America start? <laughs> Anybody know the year? Yes, 1776. So we're talking 150 years before everything happened in Philadelphia. There were people founding Harvard University. And then, not just that banner, I came across this. I received this as a gift. It's a print of Divinity Hall, the building where I took most of my classes at Harvard, dedicated in 1826. Now, 1826 doesn't even begin to approach 1636 when Harvard was founded, right? But still, I looked at this picture because Divinity Hall today has buildings around it, roads in front of it, a parking lot, all the food trucks park in front of Divinity Hall where people go get their tacos at lunch, right? And I look at this building and it's in the swamp, right? There's trees, there's wildlife. This forest. Back in 1826, it looked a lot different. And there's something about seeing this that made me wonder, what was in this place before? What was in this place before it seemed so solid? Before 1826, before 1636? The land that Harvard was built on used to be the home of a group of people called the Massachusetts. That was their name. And they had towns and villages all around the coastal area of what we now think of as Boston. That was where the Massachusetts people lived. And in the early 1600s, which seems so long ago, right? But if you think about it, 36 years before Harvard started, in the early 1600s, Traders from Europe, business people, started to sail and journey along through that region near those villages and those towns. 
And we think now that it was actually probably the rats that came over on the ships with them that brought new diseases, yellow fever especially, diseases that the people who lived in the Massachusetts community had never experienced, had no immunity to, and they began to die in overwhelming proportions. Many estimates say that about 10% of their population still remained 20 years later. Now, it's hard to imagine something like that happening today. But if you'll go with me on a little journey, it's not that hard. Does anyone remember in 2014 the Ebola threat in Atlanta? So let's just imagine, God forbid, I mean, thank God that this didn't happen, right? That modern medicine is what it is, that we are able to save people and contain outbreaks in a way that we used to not be able to. But what if we hadn't been successful? Then what would have happened in Atlanta, a, a greater metropolitan area that houses home is home to 6.5 million people, would have become a community of survivors of about 600,000 within 20 years. Imagine the grief and the loss. Imagine people you might know in Atlanta, whether they live or die, the loss and the tragedy and the trauma. And then, imagine that people from the regions where Ebola originated started moving to Atlanta. A million in the first wave, three million in the second quickly outnumbering that community of survivors. And imagine that they started encouraging conversion to their religion, building new institutions. Is your head spinning yet? <laughs> that is exactly what happened to the Massachusetts people. It's wild. Just 20 years before Harvard was founded, the first wave was 100 people coming to the Plymouth Bay Colony. The second wave was 1,000 coming to Massachusetts Bay Colony. By 1630, English Puritans were the overwhelming majority, close to 20,000 people on those lands. When we take this down to a human level, when we see this story that we may have read so many times in history books with fresh eyes, Maybe we can relate to what it must have been like to be there. And we feel it differently. Setting aside in this moment all questions about what we should do now, which is a valuable conversation to have, but not my message today. Just feel for a moment what it's like to know that we live on lands with these stories. That these places have histories far beyond what we think about every day. There are big stories on our ground, big stories about our country, about our institutions and how they were built. And there are an infinite number of smaller stories that are just as real, stories like the one Sandy shared about her family that cross generations, stories about our schools, and their histories, our neighborhoods, our churches, 
stories that are about so many things, hard work and love and loss, defeat, control, success, beauty, tragedy, overwork, flourishing, trauma, rebirth. This is the last message in our spring series called Keeping It Green. And this series has been all about how we can be receptive and open to what is emerging in our lives right now. Receptive and open to what is emerging, not in a Pollyanna way, but in a way that recognizes and honestly names our anger, our disappointments, our loss, and holds space for the potential that we do not need to live the same story all over again. We've talked about what it means to keep it green, to be open and receptive in our own stories, individually when we struggle. We've talked about what it means to do this collectively when we see patterns of pain, conflict, difficulty among us. And today, I close just by saying that keeping it green is not only opening our eyes up to the freshness of our relationships, but also to where we are. The places we live are not dead backdrops. These places actually connect us to what is lost with time. Time marches on and so much passes away and changes in our presence with each other. Here, as Unitarian Universalists, we believe that the love that holds us all stays through all of that. And so does this physical place that holds us, this earth, this ground on which all life as we have ever known it is incarnated. There's a man named Vine Deloria who wrote a pretty well-known book in the 70s called God is Red. Vine Deloria had a very long career. He did a lot of different things. He was a political science professor. He was an activist. He was the former executive director of the National Congress of American Indians. But he was first trained as a theologian. He went to divinity school thinking he might go into ministry, raised as he was by an Episcopalian missionary father. He was born in South Dakota as a member of the Sioux tribe. And so he lived at this complicated intersection of Native American life and Christianity. He saw firsthand the complex relationships between people who had roots in this land or in other lands in America and the folks who had brought over so many different things. And amidst all his other commentary, which is fascinating in this book about native religious practice and Christianity in America and the relationships between them, his core message is that any religious system that says one specific story is solid and true across all places won't last. He's been borne out in history, I would say. It won't last forever because it vastly underestimates the importance of the physical land, the character of the spaces that form us. He says the experience of truth is what he's most concerned with in our living bodies. There are certain systems of belief that say that our ideas and what we think is what is true. 
But he says we have to test this on the ground that we walk on. The literal ground in which we live and move and have our being is a source of revelation as well. My message is called Holy Ground. You might think that that phrase appears multiple times in the Christian scripture. It's often where we think it comes from. It only appears once in one story. The story that we told on TV last weekend, and some of you may be around the Seder table, the Ten Commandments on ABC. Does anybody watch that every year like I do because I'm a big nerd? Five hours, this, this epic uh, film that basically tries to cover the entire book of Exodus from the Old Testament. Last weekend, we celebrated Easter here on Sunday at Wellsprings, and the night before was the first night of Passover, the Jewish holiday that commemorates the exodus of the Jews from captivity in Egypt. And that Passover story that gets told around the Seder table that's told in this movie is full of the power of place, right? It's all about moving from one land to another, from bondage to freedom, towards the promise of a holy land, land for this community of Jews. What's funny is that during the Exodus story, during this movie, they don't get there. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. The Holy Land is only imagined. The climax of this movie, the time that God shows up in this burning bush to Moses, that happens when they're wandering in the wilderness. That happens when they have no idea if they will ever reach this place. God shows up. And what's interesting, when we look at this from our modern perspective, right, when I think about how kind of a, a, a typical modern American Moses might respond to this, he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't stick a flag in that place. He doesn't say, this is our home now. He doesn't build a fence around it. He doesn't try to replicate exactly what that land is like, take a picture, somehow save it for all eternity. Instead, when Moses greets God on that holy ground, God asks Moses to do something, to remove the barriers and shed the layers, to take off his shoes. God asks Moses to connect to this holy ground in all his vulnerability, in all his humanness, especially in that place and that time, taking off one's shoes was a humbling thing a sign of undress, of being dispossessed of something. Taking off our shoes is still a vulnerable posture to put ourselves in. Parents know this very well. Here's a rare image of a shark stepping on a Lego, right? (laughs) It's vulnerable. But it is how we honor the ground that's holy to us. We risk We deepen our connection. We sit in it and ground in it and feel it with every sense that we know. Because we know that connecting to place in some way will help us to connect to something bigger than time, bigger than the time we can imagine on this earth. Because places still live the unfolding and the receptivity and the openness, the keeping it green to what is emerging. That is always present 
and emerging anew in every place. I'm closing today with just one story that reminds me why I love this idea of place and the importance of it. Have any of you been here in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial and seen this? Some of you know what it is. So this is a stone engraved in 2003 at the top of the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to mark the place where Martin Luther King Jr. stood when he delivered his I Have a Dream speech at the March for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. This past Wednesday, we marked 50 years since Dr. King's assassination. And on the occasion, there was a local D.C. news affiliate that went to the stone to go do a little story about it. And they pointed out in the news story, we all know about the speech and we all know about the movement, but its official commemoration here at the Lincoln Memorial is practically a secret. There's no sign pointing to it. There's no ropes around it. There's really no way of knowing that it's there unless somebody happens to tell you about it or unless you happen to notice it under your feet, which is how I noticed it for the first time about 10 years ago. And it's also how Jackie and Isabel Grizzard noticed it. A mother and daughter who were visiting that day, who were interviewed, they traveled all the way from Washington State to Washington, D.C. to go to the museums, to see the MLK Memorial, to commemorate the anniversary of Dr. King's death. And Isabel, who looked about 14 years old, frizzy-haired, she said the same thing in the interview that I know I thought, that I think probably everybody says to themselves when they first see it. She said, I was just standing in that spot and thinking that I actually was Martin Luther King, looking out at the crowds, looking out at the thousands and thousands of people out there, just to know that he stood right here where I'm standing. It just makes him even more human. There are places that connect us to the people we've lost. And these places are where we still go on living. These collective places, this whole earth, always inviting us to take off our shoes, to notice, to get to know where we sit and where we stand, and to stay open to what might be revealed this time as if it were our first. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you join me for a moment of prayer? Holy presence that is greater than our understanding. Spirit of something larger than each of us of the time that was before and will be after, of this earth which has nourished and produced everything we have ever known. May we remember sometimes to open ourselves up to that humility, to that awe, that there is value in noticing there's value in getting to know the places where we spend our time. There's value in getting to know the people who have different experiences 
of those places than we do. May we remember that perhaps the greatest gift to each of us, not only because it nourishes our lives, is this earth, because it is also one single place that we all share. May we live in light of that fact. For these words that I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.